Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jade. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm so interested in your story and I'm so excited to meet you. Well, I'm very excited to meet you. And I think it's so important that you are highlighting information about Scientology and this cult, especially in California. Yes. Michelle and I were just saying that, you know, I grew up in LA and my whole life I've, you know, driven past these Scientology centers without much knowledge about what's really going on, aside from the celebrity aspect and the sensationalist, you know, the headlines that we see and all of that. It is a world that I'm so curious about and I feel like was happening right in front of me, but I don't know anything about it. Well, I'm happy you don't know anything about it. I mean, I think that's good. That means I haven't right. gotten to you. <laughs> right. So that's true. It's always better to look at the car wreck from the outside or from, you know, the bad story from the outside. So I'm happy you don't know a lot. That's true. I, I have to tell you, I'm just distracted by your beautiful background right now. Like this roaring oh. fireplace. Like Michelle's in the most beautiful home I've ever seen in my life. This fireplace, it looks so cozy and nice. Well, the, so I'm in Georgia. You know, I'm outside of Atlanta. I mean, I'm from Los Angeles and kind of missing it terribly there. But um, this house actually was built off of a house um, in, in Ojai, which is like my favorite. My wife and I are there you know, about every three to four weeks. I was just there last weekend. Oh, you are? And we're going in a couple of weeks. So no way. Um, yeah. It has been our respite, our home away from home. And so this house was designed off of a home there and we always have a fire going. I don't care if it's, you know, 98 degrees outside, yes. we will have a fire. Going. You guys are my type of people. I'm the same. It's like 40 degrees out. So it's no, I'm now. like cozy. I'm getting just the, the coziness from this, just the zoom. It's so nice. Thank you. So I want to get started kind of all the way back in your childhood, because I think there are a lot of assumptions or maybe just curiosity about how someone winds up in Scientology. Can you tell me about your childhood? Where did you grow up? And what was it like? So I was born in Nevada, in Reno, Nevada, but I lived there for a very short time. That's where my mom and dad are from. And my grandparents were from Oklahoma. So from the time of four and a half until I was a junior in high school, I grew up in Oklahoma. So Oklahoma just gave me this beautiful sense of friendship and community. Um, and then sadly, the summer between my junior or summer between my sophomore and junior year, my um, parents told me that we were moving to California. So, oh, that's a tough age. Yeah. yeah. My stepdad was an ex Olympic swimmer who had graduated mm. from USC. We moved back to California and I was devastated. It was so difficult for me. I will never forget. And I think, you know, Obviously, with, with my story and many people who have had tragic stories, you do a lot of self-reflection, mm -hmm. right? Where did I go wrong? Where did I make the wrong change? Where did I, you know, start not believing in myself? Like you really, you spend years on self-reflection and I can pinpoint moments in my life where I made wrong turns. I just started self-doubting really for the first time in my life. I was such a confident kid in school and great grades. And so at that moment, my mother started um, working as a consultant and she got recruited um, with a company out of Glendale, California called And it happened to be the largest recruit 
for the Church of Scientology. And she had no clue. I mean, no clue, no clue. I mean, we, we were not a religious family. I mean, we were Christian, we, but you know, we were the typical, Loosely, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like go to church on, on right, Christmas. On the holidays, and, yeah. yeah. Um, but my mom just got pulled into this world and sadly she didn't know until it was too late. Mm. And I started working there my summers between my junior and senior year Okay, to make extra money. And so they would, you know, when, when you find yourself in a life where you are so insecure with who you are. Mm-hmm. Like every 17-year-old nearly, yeah, right? right? Yeah. And then you couple it with you're new to an area, you're new to a community. Um, I had an accent. I talked different than everyone else. You know, everything was different for me. And um, all of a sudden you walk into a world where these people are like open arms and giving you all these accolades and telling you how smart you are and that they don't really believe in age. And, and you, you're kind of like, wow, okay. I, I feel like I'm accepted for the first time in two years. Right. So when your mom started at that job before you started, Mm -hmm. did you see a change in her, like a positive change? Did she just rave about this new company? Like what attracted you to it? Yeah. So I saw that my mom was more confident herself. Mm. I saw that she was working really hard. I did see that she was coming home with this weird language. And and I was, I kind of thought, what are you saying? Like she said to me one time, we were kind of like missing each other because she was coming home late and, you know, I was at school and we were back and forth. And she said, you know, Michelle, we really need to spend some time and getting calm. And I'm like, getting calm? What's getting calm? And she said, well, you know, that's a short version for we need to get into communication. I said, mom, why don't you just say we need to talk? And so it'd be really think like weird terminology or I'd get upset with her typical teenager, like get upset right. with my mom. Right. Yes. And she would say, you know, we're having an ARC break. So we need to sit down and get in calm. And I'm like, we're having a what? Yeah. <laughs> like, what are we having? And she'd be like, well, there's three points to communication, affinity, reality, and communication. And it's short for ARC. So we're having an ARC break. And the problem was, is that like, it's my mom, right? So, and we were best friends, my mom and, you know, sadly, my mom had multiple marriages and mm-hmm. we have a lot of time by ourselves. And so I followed her wherever she went. And Are you an only child? No, I um I have a brother. Okay. And then I have a half sister, which I really never call half sister, but only for this moment. My brother was there with us in California and he's two years under me in grade. And then my sister was growing up in San Diego with her mom. Okay. Okay. So your mom starts with this all this new vernacular. Was that hard for your stepdad? Like did their oh, relationship yeah. last? Yeah, they ended up divorcing. So Right. Cause it's probably very Polarize it? I don't know. Like it's it yeah. just makes them not on the same page, right? Well, they were kind of like already on the outskirts. And I have to say, he was a great man. I mean, he was in my life from the time that I was nine until I was 19. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, raised me, gave me that drive. You know, he he was a good person, but he was a lot younger than my mom. And my mom was going down this path, and he's like, Terry. This is L. Ron Hubbard. This is a cult. And my mother, 
you know, seriously, my mother had no clue. My mother had not been to college. My mother grew up in like the leave it to beaver family in Sparks, Nevada. You know, we were in Oklahoma, like my mom to her defense, because a lot of people through my book and my life have mm-hmm. really blamed my mother for what I've gone through. Right. And I've had moments, right? Of course. We all blame our mothers. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. right. Yes. Moments. But, you know, she was very innocent to being pulled into this. And she um, probably thought she was pulling you into, she never thought she was pulling you into something malicious or sinister. You know, right. she thought she was welcoming you into this incredible world. Right. But so you're 17, almost you know, turning 18. That's a big transitional period in your life, like where you're deciding about college or a job or whatever. So you just started this new company. Tell me about this next and how that ruled this next chapter of your life. So once again, with reflection, I look back at the moment I made that pivotal decision that took me down this path, right? So I had been accepted to almost every university I had applied to, and Mm -hmm. I had decided to go to the American University of Paris I'd studied French for five years. I wanted to go into international law. I really kind of had this like path that I saw myself on. So the problem was, is that, you know, my mother didn't go to college. My mom and stepdad had divorced now. So I wasn't really in touch with him as much. My grandparents were amazing and in my life, but they didn't know anything about college. My father wanted me to go to college, but my Mm -hmm. father is like the kind of guy that is like, your path is your path and I'll be here to support you. That's a wonderful type of guy. (laughs) Yeah. And well, you know, look, there's good and bad about it, right? Right. Like the the good part about it was he was always like, your journey is your journey and your mistakes are your mistakes. At the same time, you know, he, I didn't have somebody who was like helping me fill out the paperwork. Right. How are you going to get a plane ticket to go to Paris? So all of a sudden I found myself overwhelmed with, I'm going to a country I don't know. I don't know the first thing about filling out the paperwork to get there. And I I know I have a lot of disclaimers in my life because I'm just that kind of person. Like I never want to, I don't ever want to play victim. I know there are a lot of 18 year olds in the world who have figured out how to get to college on their own. Right. And God bless them. I was not one of those. I was scared. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to get to another country. I didn't even know how to book my own plane ticket at that Mm -hmm. time. And so I kind of just, the moment that the people at said, well, how are you going to pay for the school? And don't you think you want to work another year? And Michelle, you're going to learn more here than you would ever learn in college. Mm. They started feeding me all the lines you think as an 18-year-old. Do I really want to go back to school? Oh my God, I'm making $60,000 a year right now. I thought that was so much money back then. And, and you know, for an 18-year-old, it was a lot of money. Yeah, yes. And, um, you know, I had people who liked me and I got accolades and I was now a salesperson there. And I was taking courses there, secular courses on communication and marketing. And and I thought, well, maybe they're right. Maybe I'll push this off for a year. So had the religious stuff started yet? No. Okay. None of it had started yet. I mean, we're teaching you things about like how to properly communicate. Um, So, you know, people that can hold you back in life and how to label them. And like, it was very secular. It wasn't religious yet. 
And there was something in me, there was something in my gut that was like, I don't, this doesn't feel right. But every time I had that feeling, they would say to me, look, fear holds you back in life. And the moment you start feeling fearful of something, that means you're on the right path. And Jade, let me tell you how many times I hear that bullshit line, even in like just day-to-day stuff now. And it's like, guys, I the one thing I've learned, we are born with discernment. Whether you believe in God, whether you believe in a higher power, we believe in your gut. Yes, that's like the thing, right? So the moment it tells you something's not right, it's not because you're on the right path. It's because it's not right. (laughs) And you might need to figure out what you need to do. So that was where it kind of all went south for me was because I made that decision to stay for another summer. Right, and not go to college. And not go to college, yeah. Can you explain just in your, from your vantage point, what is Scientology? (laughs) So I I always say this is what Scientology is. It it is a little bit of Buddhism. Mm. So Owen Hubbard, like, you know, pretty much stole, you know, right? Buddhists are not aggressive people. So they're not going to fight when you steal their verbiage and their quotes and everything. So I always say it's a little bit of um, Buddhism, you know, mixed up with some Star Wars, mixed up, <laughs> mixed up with like the greatest, you know, um, inspirational speaker. Here you have like empowerment within yourself, which is wonderful and great. Mm-hmm. You have part of one of the oldest religions in the world, which really is talking about the God is within you, except Scientologists don't believe in God. Um, oh, interesting. They, yeah. They believe you are the God. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So then you mix that with Star Wars because they always take you to like multiple lifetimes. Okay. Times with spaceships. And uh-huh. they, they throw that crap in when you're like really far down the line. So that way when you go, what? You're already, you know, you're already. You're in too deep. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's so fascinating. So like the ultimate belief is not in a creator. Like how did they, we were brought on by a spaceship or like. Yeah. So here's, here's, I mean, you learn this as you kind of dive in deeper and as like things are revealed to you, but pretty much, you know, from my experience, what I had had found is that you first start in and the very first thing they have you do is something called personal values and integrity And then you also learn about potential trouble sources. So it's a very, very um, controlling way to work with you in the beginning, which is write down all the things that you feel that you have done wrong in your life and how do you take responsibility for them, right? So the very first thing you do when you go into Scientology is talk about the things you're embarrassed about or the things you've done wrong. So they have that on paper on you already, like from the moment you walk in. Oh my God. I didn't even think about the blackmail aspect of that. Oh, and so not only, not only do you have that, but then they take it 10 times further. So let's say that you say, I feel really bad because, you know, I cheated on my girlfriend at this point in time, blah, blah, blah. 
So what they write down is that you've cheated on multiple girlfriends, that you have had multiple relationships, that you admit to pretty much being a slut and that you are, you have promiscuity in your life. And so when you have to look at all of this, you really start feeding yourself those lies. Wow. And you're like, I am such a piece of shit. Oh, yeah. From day one, you're like, I, I'm not good in relationships. I'm not an honest person. Um, I need to do better. And then the second thing they have you do is, well, who's made you feel like you broke the rules? Well, what answer do you say from day like your parents? Your parents, <laughs> right? So yeah. they try to separate you from the people in your life that are the ones who will tell you what you're doing is not okay. And of course, my mother was the one that brought me in, but my grandparents Hmm. were the people that were just like, Michelle, you know, this doesn't seem right, honey. But they loved me so much and they were just careful about stepping in. And I started putting them in the category of the people who told me what I was doing was wrong and that they weren't supporting my freedom and my different way of life. Those are the first two courses that you do in Scientology. And is the goal to remove those people from your life? Like, are you supposed to, not reconciliation, it's more just like, how can you remove those people and factors that make you do wrong things? That's right. Right, okay. They're called suppressive people. And so they suppress you from being who you truly should be. And so- you learn how to treat them with what Elwin Hubbard calls good roads, good weather. So if you called me and you're my parent or you're my friend or you're my aunt or you're somebody that was important to me and they said, hey, Michelle, what are you doing today? You'd be like, oh, things are great. Weather's great. I'm having a great time. And don't get into anything specific. And if they say to you, were you still doing that Scientology thing? You could be like, yeah, here, Scientology is great, but how are you today? And you learn to like, switch everything away from personal questions. And you kind of are taught that this is in your self-interest, when in reality, it's in the interest of the church. The interest of the church. Yeah, because you keep keep writing checks. I mean- Right, and and you keep quiet. You keep quiet, you keep writing checks. And the very first thing you do when you question the church is you question yourself. So Mm. the moment you say, well, that course doesn't make sense, or well, why would they be having me do this? then you're, you are trained to immediately go, oh, if I'm questioning anything, I'm questioning it because I've got my own, my own problem with it and I got to figure right. out what that is. And I guess something that I have trouble understanding is you, you don't live together, right? Like there isn't so, this right. communal living. It's, do you go to classes every day? How do they make sure that you're getting this messaging consistently enough? Like what is the programming? Can you have like a full-time job? So there's two groups of people, right? There, there are the people that work directly for the church, which my mom eventually started doing. Okay. And they call that the C organization, um, which was that term was coined because Elrond Hubbard originally started the church of Scientology on a ship. And they were called the C organization or C org for short. And he kind of like kept that term even for everyone who, who works in Scientology. Right. And then you have those that were like me who worked, but were still Scientologist. Mm-hmm. And what that meant for me is I was required to do 12 and a half hours of study a week. 
Jeez. on top of my job and you were like in trouble if you didn't do it. So you'd work all day long and you would have to be at, in the course room. So you would literally go into like, I don't, you've probably driven by Celebrity Center, right? Yeah, of course. A yes. Beautiful. Yes. Stunning. Mansion yes. looking place. So they've turned all the hotel rooms. They've kind of like knocked out the walls and turned out all the hotel rooms into course rooms. So it, you have these like long tables and everybody's on their individual course. Mm-hmm. You have a booklet and you have things that you have to answer and do. And then you have to get checked out by a teacher and you have to do drills. And so you have 12 and a half hours of study of that. And you're put on this trajectory of what your study materials are. And then on top of that, you do auditing, which is, it's like a moment like this where you're talking one-on-one with somebody, but it's really flipping crazy. You're like holding (laughs) tin cans, right? Like, okay, to explain this whole thing. So when you first go in and they sign you up for the course, I always feel like such an idiot explaining this stuff because like you look back now, you're like, oh my God. So you first go in and they give you a tour. They bring you to this thing that looks like, it's like this like round machine Mm -hmm. with this little thing on it that goes back and forth. And then it's got these like it looks almost looks kind like, of like a like, lie detector. It okay. is. It's a lie detector, okay. and you hold on to these cans, and they tell you that there's a little bit of electricity that runs through, and what it does is it measures thought. And when you go in, you're literally like, okay, whatever. And you're like, oh, like a lie detector, and they'll say, well, it's definitely far more advanced than a lie detector. <laughs> well, but... Yeah, you're holding tin cans, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you're like, okay, so they'll say okay, I'm going to pinch your arm, hold on to the cans. And they pinch your arm. And then they tell you, okay, wait a second. You wait for the needle to like stop moving. And they say, think about that pinch. And you think, and the needle moves. Okay. And you're kind of like, okay. And Jade, that's all it takes for you to believe. That they can like read your mind? Yes. You feel like or that they can guide you to the whole goal of auditing is they believe that you have two sides of the mind. So this is what you're learning in coursework, right? You're learning about that there's two sides to the mind. One is the reactive side and one is the analytical side. Now, remember anything I'm telling you right now, if there's anything that makes sense in it, it's just because it's ripped off from something else. Uh Ripped off from Buddhism or psychology or right. Like we all have painful moments that are recorded in our brain. Like Elron Hubbard wasn't a genius to figure it out. People do psychoanalysis every single day. Um, and even Buddhism has really talked about how you have, and, and look, I'm not an expert in Buddhism. So excuse me, Buddhist, if I get something wrong, um, from my understanding, it's like, yes, there's a lot of painful moments in your life. And it does control you. So you have to find ways through meditation, mm. through, you know, introspection to get rid of that, right? Right. So Scientology says that the reactive mind, which is the mind that holds all painful incidences, is holding you back in life. Okay, well, sure. all right, fine, right? Yeah. So what auditing does is that they believe a lot of those painful moments are below the conscious, so subconscious. Right. And it takes a trained auditor to help you weave your way through your mind to find 
where that first original moment occurred. So the example they give you is, let's say you get headaches a lot. Well, where did those headaches come from? Well, they're going to take you all the way back and they're going to guide you to a time when you were riding a bike and you fell off your bike and you hit your head. And now every time you see a bicycle, you get a headache. I mean, it's like, yeah, like that, right? Okay. The thing is, is that we all love talking about ourselves and we all love digging deep and finding these moments. So you do have these aha moments. It's like therapy. Yeah, it's a hundred percent therapy, but yet Scientology is totally against psychiatrists. Right. It's probably because, you know, psychiatrists have figured them out. Yes. Like Alan Hubbard was a psycho. Yeah. So. It's kind of like manipulative <laughs> therapy. It's kind of right. like, yeah, it's a it's therapy in a very different way. Well, they're 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 guiding you to places that you really don't have a memory or answer. Right. And is the goal also to find out? let's say like you talk about a bad relationship with your mom, then they can use that as a tactic to manipulate you further. Like maybe the the examples that they use when they're teaching you in the future will use maternal aspects yeah. or, you know, things like that to manipulate you, right? Like they try to oh, find yeah. your weak spirit sensitive spots. They do. And I, I, you know, look, I think the reason Scientology does so well is just look at the movies that do the greatest in the world, mm-hmm. right? They're all space-driven, hero-ridden. The the guy or the woman saves the day, mm-hmm. battle it out. They may even die, but everything is about a battle and um, superpowers and and space, right? Right, or some other dimension. So that is what Scientology uses. And that's why it's so intriguing is because we all want to believe that we are superheroes. We all want to believe that somebody else in our life has held us back. That's what I was going to say. Right? How convenient is that? Yes. Right? It's always somebody else's fault, but they'll make you believe it's yours. But it's only because you put yourself around Mm -hmm. a person who created it. And... They take you further back from the time you fell off the bike. They're literally like, well, give me an earlier time. You're like, oh, I hit my head when I was two. I can barely remember it. Okay, give me an earlier time. Right. You're like, earlier? No, give me an earlier. And you'll sit there and they'll go right there. Okay, well, when I just said that to you right now, I'm sure you can make up something in your head. Or like something goes, you go earlier. Oh, okay, I was in the womb. And they're like, yes. Yes. Good. Okay. Oh, well maybe I think my my mom mom fell, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Your mother fell. Now give me an earlier time. And you think and think, well, we all play movies in our head and they play into it. And the reason you know that it is not true once you come out is because you realize that you keep playing those movies in your head and they're not true. And how many times have we been so fearful of something in our life or so scared that something's going to happen and we just made it up? Our minds want to play movies all the time. Mm -hmm. And so Scientology keeps you playing a movie all the time. And then you become the person in the movie. Tom Cruise is playing out 
in my opinion, is playing out everything he has said sitting in that auditing chair. I'm sure that man believes that he has flown spaceships and Mm -hmm. he has saved the world. And that is the journey that he is on right now. That's fascinating. Although I have a problem with him and how much he promotes all of it, he's just as much a victim in this as anyone else. Right. Oh, that's important to say. That's interesting. And like, as you're talking, like, of course, Scientology maybe takes it to the next level with the sci-fi aspect. Mm -hmm. But so much of what you're saying, like, I think a lot of people are going to be able to relate to believing in something when you were younger or, you know, believing in a religion or cult or whatever. Like there are so many people that grew up like that and Mm -hmm. look back and are humiliated by the fact that they believed it. But that's what we, as human beings, we want answers and belonging. And, you know, so I understand how you were susceptible to that. We need to remember you were still, what, like 21 at this point or 20? Oh, no. I was, so I I think my first first auditing, my first auditing was 18. 18. And I really got in much deeper when I was 19. And that's when I tried to come out gay. Okay. Um, And then, oh my God, all hell went to a handbasket. We need to unpack. Yes. I (laughs) mean, let's get into that. Was your motivation throughout the whole process? Because, you know, in Christianity or whatever, it's Mm -hmm. that you go to heaven you know, or that you're promised this afterlife. What is the motivation day to day in Scientology? Is it that your future life on this earth will be better? Is it the belonging aspect? Is it a combination of those? So the, the first goal is that you reach clear, which means that your reactive mind no longer controls who you are and what you do today. So does someone like do you pass a test to get Yeah, to I mean, you okay. have to do like so many hours of auditing. You have to come up with this like secret answer. You have to have recall like on this stuff. Okay. Um, but it's a big deal. Like when you get your clear certificate, everybody at Celebrity Center is downstairs. You're at the top of the stairs. Everybody's plotting and screaming. And, and yeah, I mean, you know, you feel yes, like a superhero. Very theatrical. You feel like a celebrity, right? And especially why does Scientology do so well in the big cities is because the big cities are so focused on celebrities and everybody wants to be a celebrity. Right. And so that's what they make you feel like. They make you feel important. And so by the time you pay all the money to get to clear, um, I mean, you've paid minimum, minimum tens of thousands um, but was that for you just like a pay cut? Did that just go directly or would no. you give it when you did something wrong or was it just? No. So every single time you do a course, okay. you, oh, you, pay. You, you pay for it. Every time you get auditing, you buy them in 12 and a half hour blocks. And um, yeah, so you pay like, I think it was, I can't even remember back then because I'm sure it's a lot more now, but I, I'm wanting to say it was like $3,200 for 12 and a half So hours. they just find ways to require you to take these courses, but also oh, yeah. require you to pay for them. Well, and the funny thing is out of all the years I was in Scientology, I cannot tell you how many times they would come out with a new release and say, well, we we discovered that there was a suppressive person at the executive level who put oh, Jesus. false data in. 
some of the courses that you did. Therefore, you have to redo them. And by the and way, you have to pay for them. You have to you have to repurchase <laughs> oh them. Oh my god! And we all fell for it. Oh I mean, my god! Like, yeah. So in those audits, you kind of first had this confession that you were maybe gay or that you were attracted to the same sex. And had you had those thoughts when you, before joining, like, were you, Yeah. was this something that was apparent to you? Well, I wouldn't say apparent. I mean, look, growing up in Oklahoma, um, nothing about being gay was apparent, especially in the eighties. Right. Totally. Um, you know, I, I didn't know anybody that was gay or that I, I knew was gay in Oklahoma. Um, I kind of thought I was in cheerleading forever. I was in gymnastics forever. I was a late bloomer. I thought maybe it was hormonal. Like all my friends talked about boys and, and they were so excited to go on a date and I I would just get chills down my back. Like, Oh, you know, (laughs) and I thought, okay, well maybe it's just because I'm just like a late bloomer. I, I hormonally, I'm not there yet. And that's really how I explained it to myself. And then when I got to California, I will never forget there was this girl in high school who was this really dykey um, and she was like, everybody was scared of her and half of her head was shaved and she wore motorcycle jackets. And I was so infatuated with her. Oh my God, I love it. um, And she was out. Everybody knew she was a lesbian. And I would just like, if she walked down the hallway, I'd just be like, you know. I love (laughs) it. Yes. I couldn't process what that meant to me other than I was so infatuated with her. So then um, when I moved to California, my best friend at the time literally lived two doors down from me. And um, so nothing, I mean, I did, I really, I dated like one person in high school, Yeah, never anything major. And then um, my best friend- A boy, friend, you're saying. A boy, yeah, yeah. I dated a boy in high school. And then my best friend and I, once school was over, we were hanging out a lot and one thing led to another and a relationship was started between she and I, Mm. but we were, it was almost like, it was almost like you didn't, we never talked about it like during the day, (laughs) we, we never, we never really talked about it to anybody else. Um, It was kind of a nighttime thing. and so. I liked her. She wasn't, I'm definitely more attracted to, you know, a more masculine female right. kind of put you like my wife is a hundred percent opposite of me. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, and she was definitely my first experience. And I just kept thinking like, what is wrong with me? What is wrong mm. with me that I'm feeling this way? So right then is when I was getting into Scientology. So when I started auditing, when they asked you in the beginning, like, is there any area that you need to address? Is there anything that is of concern to you? Well, I didn't know that they thought anything bad about it, but I knew it was something that felt like I needed to hide that. Mm-hmm. So I brought it up in session. And, you know, here's the worst part of all of it. And Scientology is known for this. And Leah Remini talks about this a lot. You know, these auditors ask you details. And, you know, I personally think they kind of get off on what it is that you're saying. No different totally. than like a bad psychiatrist. Right. And there's no confidentiality agreement. There's like, like you're no. just, okay. Yeah. And you just, there's a confidentiality agreement in the sense that because they're considered a religion and your auditor is considered a minister, that 
what you say in there cannot be revealed. But um, you kind of know they're going to talk to other, right? Like, you know, they're going to talk to I didn't at the okay. time. Oh, so you thought this was a safe space and I'm just going to, uh, oh, yeah. okay. Oh yeah. You don't, you don't know this is being shared with anyone. Got it. So you go over this information and all your auditor does is thank you very much. Like they're not allowed to give oh any my opinion God. and they just, they're writing, 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 writing as you're talking. And so at the end of the session, they will be like, okay, thank you very much. And, you know, we're going to send this to the case supervisor. That's what they're called, where it goes up. They'll review your session and they'll come back with steps for the next session. So I'm like, great. So I get a telephone call that night when I'm at home. We need you to come in to Celebrity Center tonight. I'm like, I lived, you know, lived up in Valencia. I was in Hollywood. I'm like, come in tonight. Yes, we need to see you tonight. You need to be here at seven o'clock. Okay. So I go down there. And when I get there, I go to check in in the area that you go to do auditing. And the person says, come with me. And I think I'm being walked to a private auditing room, which at Celebrity Center is like a hotel room. There's no bed in there. It's like a right. table chairs and a bathroom. And I get taken down literally to the basement. We're like going down the stairs down into the basement. Right. And I'm kind of looking around and they turn all these corners and open this door in this tiny little room with this woman sitting there that probably was not older than I was stacked with folders, which are your, your folder from auditing. Mm -hmm. And she tells me to sit down and she puts a piece of paper in front of me. And it's uh, all about ethics and morality and, you know, your morals and what's right and what's wrong. And she has me read quotes from Alwyn Hubbard about homosexuality and how homosexuality is no different than having sex with animals. And I, Everything. I was so embarrassed and I so was ashamed. so, I mean, my, I've got chills, right? I mean, it was so embarrassing and so demeaning to know that what I had said to that person was sitting there written down in front of this girl who was probably my age. She was so scary to me and authoritarian, like authoritarian, authoritarian. Totally. And it was horrible. So I had to go through all these steps of deciding what group I was going to be part of, heterosexual group or homosexual group. and Meaning like part of the church or not, right? Yeah, like you have to make this decision, like which group are you part of, right? And if you're part of, if you're part of being a Scientologist and you're part of the heterosexual group, and then you have to cause a blow to the enemy. So the enemy is homosexuality. (gasps) And so you're like, okay, at that point, you feel like you're the biggest scumbag and you're going to do whatever you have to do. You're like begging them to accept you back. Right. You don't want your parents told. You don't want your friends told. So, you know, you have to come up with this big thing. Well, my blow to the enemy was I was never allowed to be in touch with this girl again. I could not associate with anybody who was gay or that I had any thoughts of gay. And if I knew of anybody who was gay in Scientology, I was to turn them in immediately. Um, And then I had to go around with this written, whole written thing of what I had done in detail and had to get all the Scientologists that were at Celebrity Center to sign it and accept me back. 
Oh, geez. so it is like a true, total humiliating thing. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. You feel like shit. And I mean, I'm sitting there with like some, some old dude reading, you know, about how I touched this girl and, and, and he looks at me and tells me you are so disgusting. And oh my thank God. God you're here in Scientology so that we can help you. It's kind of like a conversion therapy of sorts. It and- is 100% conversion therapy. Right. And the government of the state of California is doing nothing but playing into them. Right. And then helping the church go after the people who leave. Like the government doesn't know they're doing this. Like, yeah. They don't know, but they're being set up and controlled and they don't even realize it because they don't have anything in place to protect our first, um, first amendment rights, right? We have freedom of religion. We as Americans have the right to go in and out of any religion we want at any point in time. We should not be stalked. We should not be harassed. It's just going to keep happening if people don't speak out. Yeah. So then you did the ultimate blow to homosexuality, which is you got married, right? Right. Tell right. me about that. How did you meet him? What did you want to get married? I would say that, you know, obviously this area is probably truly out of everything that I've gone through. It's the one area that is just still so painful because this person has not had to be responsible for anything and the church has not had to be responsible. So, yes. Part of the blow to the enemy was I had to find a boyfriend and I didn't know really what that meant. And three or four months later, I was at a party um, in Newport beach. There was a whole bunch of us that had run out of house and we were in Newport beach and some guy was invited. Um, I was not a big partier. I didn't like to drink alcohol and especially being a Scientologist, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't drinking, yes. um, which is another bad sign. No. I didn't really, yeah, right. Exactly. No, truly. <laughs> at least Christianity, they let us drink. Yeah. Right? At least you get wine, <laughs> yeah. right? <laughs> so um, I was at this party and I felt uncomfortable because, you know, people were doing like beer bongs. And mm-hmm. so I walked out to the beach with my friend and this guy kind of followed us out to the beach and he seemed very sweet and nice. And he asked me to go out. And so we went out on a date. And then the first thing he asked me to do after that was to, to come over to his house. And he'd still lived with his parents. He was like some new trying to be an actor. And you're 21 at this point. No, we were, we were 20 at the time. Okay. And so I go to his parents' house and it was everything I was looking for in a family, right? My mother had, you know, it's like talk about going back and looking at pivotal moments, right? It's like, I didn't fall in love with him. I fell in love with the family and I fell in love with what it represented. And I felt my parents, you know, both on my both sides had been married and divorced multiple times. I mean, my father, you know, on the last one, he's they've been together like 40 years now and Mm -hmm. she's amazing and wonderful. Yeah, But I wanted consistency and I went over there. I think it was like on Easter or something. And 
they were celebrating Easter and they were doing this big Easter egg hunt. And he had a brother and his brother's girlfriend was there and their cousins were there and his parents had a lot of money and they had a big, beautiful home. And I, I, I just felt security. You were enchanted by it. Yeah, I was. And I, you know, I really, so. So they weren't Scientologists, this family, but he was. No. Or he was not either. Okay, he was he not was at not, the time. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he was just a random guy. Okay, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, for probably like three months, we would he would show up at my friend's house. We'd be laying out at the pool or mm-hmm. he would show up, you know, where I was working and he'd be there for lunch. And and I there was I couldn't figure out why, like this guy was so kind to me. So I thought and he was saying all the right things, but there was something in me. I just, when every time I was around him or he would like physically touch me, I'd get chills. And my friend kept saying to me, Michelle, you will never find the person that you have up on your pedestal. You're never going to find them. And obviously- That's a toxic piece of advice. Right? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And obviously you've got something going on with you inside and maybe it's because you've never experienced being with a man. Okay. And maybe you just need to go there because I'm telling you, it's great. Those those are not my words. (laughs) Those are not my words. (laughs) Um, Those are her words. Yes. But um, so- it was, I don't know. It just, it like ended up kind of happening. And sadly, the relationship itself became very controlling in the beginning, very mentally abusive and always alcohol involved when there had to be sex. And so it became a habit. I mean, thank God I never had a constant drinking issue or be right. partially because of Scientology. Or maybe I could have, but that was the only way I had to find a way to numb myself mm-hmm. to go there. And then once I went there, there was really no turning back for me because I am a very committed person. I have told myself that I will never divorce because of what my parents went through, no matter how bad it got. And then I had Scientology wrapped around it. Like all of a sudden I was like the star child again. And they were so happy with me and, you know, everything was so wonderful and great. And I was dying inside. And, you know, I just, with every day that I spent as his wife, every day I spent in Scientology, I lost more and more of myself. I lost that person who was kind, who loved life, who didn't think I was all that, who was innocent. I I lost my ability to truly love. Like your humanity. I, I just, I became this shell of a person. I became the Scientology robot that I was supposed to become, which was push all emotion aside compartmentalize everything, go out there and make a shitload amount of money, look like the perfect wife and couple and, you know, donate all your money to Scientology. And that is literally what my life became from that moment on. Wow. He joined shortly after you got married or before? As soon as my mom, you know, met him, she was like, look, you have to understand we're Scientologists and 
you need to go take this course. And of course he took a couple courses and right. And then he got into it and his parents were kind of like, what is this? But his, his parents were atheists. So they were, they, they didn't really know about Scientology, but they didn't really care either way. Um, they didn't like the idea that Scientology kept trying to get money from him because, you know, they had worked very, very hard to build what they had built. Right. And they knew every time we were turning around, it was like, well, can you write this $10,000 check to Scientology? They were like, we were like, oh no, 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 this will this will help him, you know, work more. It's still helping get a job because he wasn't working. He was like this, you know, kind of out of work beginning actor. actor. Okay. And I was the one doing all the working. I started, I went and got my life insurance license and started in the life insurance industry. And my career was just like booming. Okay. And I was, you know, doing a lot. And he was constantly like not working, working for his parents, not working, working for his parents, you know? Right. And so then you had kids, right? So eight years later, mm-hmm. eight years later, I finally was at a point. I mean, I love children. I've always loved children. And I was like, you know, I want to have a child. Um, so we had, we had a son. Mm-hmm. Sage was, we lived in Northern California at that time because I was opening up the offices up there. But, you know, Sage was six weeks old and I have Sage, Savannah, just Savvy, and um, Jaden and London are the twins. Oh my God. You have four kids. Four kids. Oh so my God. Amazing. Okay. I finally left when Sage was seven, almost eight. Okay. So I just think, thank God he was protected, mm-hmm. but he was like the, it was like the first time that this love was so strong in me. I tried to divorce five times. And what do you mean? Time, like you went to the church or you oh, went to I, him? I went to the church and obviously to him, but yeah, went to the church and said, I'm done. So the yeah. first time was when Sage was six weeks old. Mm-hmm. And then when Sage was two and it, like literally right. I would go to the chaplain and say, I'm done. I can't take this anymore. It's too mm-hmm. much for me. And we always would get put back together. Always, mm-hmm. always, always. I remember you saying that you knew that if you divorced him, you would have to spend a substantial amount of money. So that's what it finally came down to. Right. So when Sage was six, my ex was really pushing to have another child. And Mm -hmm. I just couldn't, like in my head, have a consensual moment to have a baby. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. So, and I know that sounds weird because everybody's like, well, I'm sure you guys still had sex here. I mean- there's a difference between going a month and drinking alcohol and giving in right. to knowing I'm creating a child uh-huh. with this person, with this person. Right. And I couldn't do it again. Mm-hmm. And so I had gotten introduced to um, an adoption attorney. So I get a telephone call from this attorney that I'm doing a human rights campaign with. And he it's like, Michelle, where are you? And I said, what do you mean? Where am I? I just flew in from Dallas. I'm at the airport. And he said, I have a baby for you. So long story short, that's was my savvy, my Aww. Savannah. You have Savannah, then you have twins, right? So I have Savannah. Savannah, so she was born October of 2006. Mm-hmm. I knew that I could not physically divorce during her adoption process. Uh-huh. He said, Michelle, just get through her adoption, which 
as you know, in the state of California, anything in the court system takes forever. Absolutely. So it was not until January, the following January, Mm -hmm. that her adoption was going to be final. This was January of 2008. Okay. So I just was kind of hanging on. I mean, we were, there were, I mean, we were at our, I mean, worst, 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 worst. I was always getting my assistance to get the kids out of the house. I was always running out of the house, jumping in the car with the babies, taking off from him. I mean, it was 12 months of true, true bad stuff. So it was February of 2008. We were getting ready to leave to go to the big church in Florida to to divorce. Mm -hmm. And our neighbors next door had invited us. They were like these 80-year-old, really like wealthy, you know, downsized to their 9,000 square foot home from (laughs) Brentwood, you know, Um, and they were kind of like the socialites of the neighborhood. And they made us promise we were going to show up for his 80th birthday. It was going to be also be a big charity event, this whole thing. So... I literally told my ex, put on a friggin' tux, pretend like we like each other. We only have to do this for three hours, but you're going to this and we're doing it for our neighbors. Right. So we show up and we get seated at this table and I get seated next to who is my wife today. No way. Wow. Okay. She was my neighbor across the street, married to a woman. And I used to, like the high school days, every time I drove by their house, I would just dream, like, what is their life like? And I didn't know who she was. I mean, you know, in LA, all of our gates close. Nobody knows anyone. Like, I barely, I only knew the neighbors next door because they were old and would always come over and see the babies. And so that night, I literally had my back to him and she had her back to her wife And neither one of us knew that we were both in the middle of a separation. There was no like physical attraction at that time. It was just, we literally talked from seven o'clock at night until we left at 1130. Wow. And she had this like Southern accent that made me feel like home. Yeah. I didn't know what she did for a living. She never asked me. I never asked her. And we just talked. We talked about you know, she had an adopted black niece. I talked about Savannah. We talked about what that meant in the world today. Right. We talked about human rights. We, we just were like this the whole time. Mm-hmm. So that night when we came home was the last time I was physically in a room living with my ex. Mm-hmm. And um, I became pregnant with twins. Wow. That night. That night and did not know it, of course. Wow. And I always say, you know, they're too young now and I know one day they're going to read my book. And I always say, you know, I truly believe that they were the strength and they were the testosterone in my body Mm. that finally, finally gave me the strength to leave. And they were truly my, my biggest blessing, you know, both Savannah and Sage too. Mm-hmm. And so Tina, who I had met yeah. at um, that dinner. Your now wife. My now wife. Yes. Didn't hear from me again. And all of a sudden, for all these years, my respite had been my work. Mm-hmm. And so I had created the most successful woman-owned 
um, premium finance um, life insurance estate planning firm in the nation. And I worked with, you know, celebrities and high-end net worth people and did very large uh, estate um, programs. And my company made millions of dollars. I mean, I, I was very, very blessed and did well. I gave millions of dollars to the church. So at that moment, I knew that I could write a hefty check to my ex. I could write a hefty check to the church of Scientology and I could get the fuck out Hopefully of that marriage, just, yeah. right? Just like out of here. So I did, right? Wrote him a check, wrote the church a check. Still took two years to finalize everything. So the, the check to the church is kind of like, but still accept me, right? Like, now, what is I, it? I was kind of at that point where they had not protected me and I was more interested in protecting my children that I was starting to slowly pull away. Like any abusive relationship, nobody just walks out the next day, right? So you don't walk out of them in marriages. They say the average, the average like time six a times. Day, yeah, you, it takes it. And for me, it was the sixth time. Wow. It takes a long time to leave. So the first step is that you start questioning. And I wanted to play a game with them. And I thought, let me see if I finally offer money and then take back that money. If they don't give me that divorce, are they going to, are they going to, take my bait. And if they take my bait, just confirm to me that all I am is money to them. Uh-huh. And they did. I told them that I would write them hundreds and thousands of dollars of a check if they started my divorce proceedings the next day. And if they didn't, they would not get another dime from me until I was divorced. And literally the next morning, the chaplain was drawing up our agreement. Wow. And, you know, look, fought it. He signed five of them and backed out of every agreement. Right. You know, it was, it was, it was a nightmare. But at that moment I was starting those proceedings. I still did not know I was pregnant with twins. I knew I was pregnant. Right. But I hadn't gone to the doctor because I was in Florida in the middle of a divorce. And I knew that I was like four months pregnant and I was getting so big. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> so right. my grandfather was passing. So I went to Nevada. My grandfather was passing away and I came back. I was four and a half months pregnant, finally went to the doctor and he's like, you are having twin boys. Wow. So he immediately put me on bed rest. I had a very difficult pregnancy had to run my company from my bed. And from that moment, I have to say, it was the start of my greatest freedom. Being confined to bed was the start of your greatest freedom. Of my freedom. greatest freedom. Because I ran my company from my bed. I hired an entire staff in my house. I made sure the children were well taken care of. I mean, <laughs> the guys next door literally thought, because I had all these beautiful women working for me. So the guy <laughs> next door was like, what are you running over there? There was all these, the, they called them the clickety clacks because I had all right, these the like, little gorgeous heels. girls with their heels, <laughs> like walking in and out of my house all the time. I love it. <laughs> so you're still in Scientology though, but you're excelling in your career, right? Kind of. Okay. But the good news is because I got put on bed rest. You can't go to auditing. You can't, I can't go to auditing. Uh -huh. I can't go to course. So all of that's slipping away. And one thing I want to mention too, that happens in auditing, I forgot to mention this. It's very important. There's been a study done by a couple psychiatrists that 
that little bit of electricity that is running through your body when you're holding the cans, when it's over a length of period of something like 10 minutes mm-hmm. and you do this for hours, that it literally creates an opiate-like effect. Wow. So what happens is every time you get out of session, you feel higher than a kite. You feel like you could conquer the world. And people think it's because of what you go over. It's because you're literally high. You're literally high. Wow. That is fascinating. That's an important factor. Yes. So you crave it. You crave that feeling. You cannot wait to go back in session. And so I didn't have to do any of that. I didn't have to go back in session. I wish that that was the end of the story, but it was far from. So shortly thereafter, you find out you're kind of distanced from the church, right? Did you have like Mm -hmm. a real emancipation or did you just slowly disappear? And then when did you find out people were following you? The best part of this story is that when the babies were four months old, when the twins were born and they were four months old, I was starting to go back to work. Mm-hmm. And, and you guys are divorced, right? Like he's not, you guys well, are co- co-parenting? We're not co-parenting. He wasn't around the children for two and a half years. Okay. Um, so I was going to say, how do you co-parent with a Scientologist? That is like. Oh, look, that's been the bane of my existence even to, to, to today. So, um, right. Yeah. That's a whole nother story, but um, you pretty much let them keep falling on their face and eventually they're going to fall on their face so many times and create so many lies that your children are old enough to see it mm-hmm. and they make their own decisions. Right. But at that time he wasn't, he really wasn't in the picture at all. Okay. Um, and he wasn't really fighting for them at all either. So, um, so I get a telephone call because one of my clients that I did estate work for was Shaka Khan. So I, um, get a call from Tammy, her manager, who's, who is her sister. So it used to be her manager says, Michelle, look, I really want you to sit down with Shaka and I, there's a new artist that we're launching and we want you to invest in her. And I was like, look, I have no interest. And she's like, no, no, no. I really, I'm telling you, you're going to like this, this girl. And I was like, no, I just can't. And she said, well, look, will you at least meet with the producer? And I was like, Tammy, I don't know anything about music. (laughs) Like, no. So all of a sudden she goes, wait a minute. I think you know this person. And I was like, I do not know a music producer. You're like, I guarantee you, I don't. Yeah, no. So um, she said, no, 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 no. I think you guys live in the same neighborhood. And I'm like, let me tell you something. I live in a great, nice neighborhood up here in Valencia, but there are no, you know, music producers that live here. So she said, her name is Tina Clark. And all of a sudden it rang a bell and I'm like, it was the woman that I was right. sitting next to that night. Right. And I said, oh my God. I said, I didn't know what she did for a living. I never asked. And which is so un-LA like, yeah, right? right? <laughs> and, it shows you're um, not from here. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> not true. <laughs> and so I said, okay, call Tina right now and tell her you're talking about the woman that was sitting next to her that night at the table. 10 minutes later. I think of the phone and I hear this Mississippi accent on the other line. She's like, girl, where have you been? And um, so I obviously was not going to go into my crazy ass life. And I just said, well, I'm so sorry. I've gone through a divorce. And she was like, wait a minute. I saw storks in your, 
yard. Like, didn't you just have babies? I was like, yeah, please don't ask. But yes, I did. <laughs> yes. And, and she was like, look, I'd really love to talk with you. I understand that, you know, you invest in entertainment. And um, I really just want to tell you up front, like, I don't think you need to invest in this woman. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was so, not shock of the right, other, right, right. Other, yes, yes, other yes. girl. And I thought it was so refreshing that somebody from Los Angeles would be awesome, you know, like very honest. Uh, yeah. And care about your, yeah. Yeah. And, and Tina was like, I don't need your money. If I'm going to produce this girl, I'll pay for it on my own. Right. And so she's like, why don't we have breakfast? So the next morning we went in uh, Marmalade Cafe. Best. <laughs> right? My favorite. Yes. And um, had breakfast and we sat there for three hours just talking. And I was so intrigued in her life and like, what she had done in her life coming from Mississippi and she came out at 21. And not only is Tina's musical career and background amazing, but her life as a gay woman, I was so inspired at Mm. that moment. Of course, I never said to her like, well, I'm gay or I like, I'd never, never, never. Right. You were still like nursing twin baby boys. Yeah, like, your exactly. Whole life, your yeah, whole life is, yeah. <laughs> Excuse yeah. me. I got to yeah. make sure that I'm not dripping here. Yes. Um, yeah. And in my head, there was no thought of dating anybody. And so over the next few months, it was like, you know, she started telling me about how she was going through um, her divorce and, you know, how horrible this woman was. And I'm like, God, how did, you know, and then we started talking about like what I had gone through, what she'd gone through. And, and, um, you know, you just, we ended up creating this beautiful friendship and kind of started meeting on work stuff. And she was doing a, you know, Broadway musical and and different things that we were kind of like talking about. So one day I said to her, um, you know, I'm a Scientologist. And she was like, a what? And I said, a Scientologist. Perfect answer. Yes. Yeah. And she was like, I don't know anything about it. You can be Scientology, Wallamy, whatever. Yeah. Like she knew nothing about Scientology. So needless to say, a few more of like, she goes out of town and sends me a text and says, I really miss you. Mm. And then, you know, I send a text back. I really miss you. And then the texts start getting a little flirty. And, and then one day we're sitting at the montage for a meeting I knew that I wanted to wear a dress and Mm -hmm. fashion has been a love of mine. So I have way too much. And I was like, (laughs) I was like, this Lawn Vaughn piece will be perfect. (laughs) So, so I am sitting and my legs are like crossed to the left and I glance over and Tina is literally looking at my legs from like my ankles all the way up and back down and not even listening. Right. Every single hair on my body was like standing up and tingling. And I was like, oh, yes. You're like, I found her. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So I got scared of this feeling and jumped up and was like, you know what? I got to get back. I have the babies to get to. I got to get back. Because in my head, I'm like, oh my God, my divorce isn't final. Not that I cared about that. I mean, we had been a long time separated, but I, I have babies and like, what am I doing? Right. And I went home and I walked straight upstairs and I threw myself back on the bed. And it was that pivotal moment. 
And I looked up at the ceiling and I said, I am a lesbian and I am finally home. Oh my (laughs) God. I love that. Let's just say there was a lot of making out in parking lots and hotel rooms. Oh, I um, love that so much. Yeah. We were, we were crazy. I felt like I was a teenager for the first time with like my first love. Right. So that was pretty amazing. What I didn't realize at the time as I was like hiding all of this from everyone. Right. Was that Mr. Who was the producer, director guy, got very worried about Tina asking him questions Mm. and knew that I was spending a lot of time with Tina. So he had asked me to hire this girl in my company that could just be a liaison between he and I. And he felt like I was getting too pulled with my insurance business and I wasn't focused enough on raising capital for him. And so it made sense. Like I thought, okay, yeah, I could see because I don't want to be pulling all the people that work for me in the insurance business, communicating to him. Right. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, well, she happened to be a plant that he put in my company and he worked with the church to do so. Oh my God. She talked me into hiring a company to come in and put all my files on digital. You know, I knew nothing about like how computers worked and all this. Right. And she was this IT guru. And so she hired a Scientology company that was run by a person who worked for the church, who put every single one of my files electronically. Mm-hmm. Within like a day, and all of this we know now through, you know, major discovery because of all the, all the court cases. Right. That day, she transferred 1,900 business emails to her personal Gmail account, which then went to her husband's Gmail account. Um, she wow. was reporting back to not only but to a, a person called the Office of Special Affairs in Inside. the church. Okay. Mm-hmm. So here's what the church thinks, right? The church thinks that if they get something on you, like if if I'm hiding being gay and they come to me and confront me that they know I'm gay, that I'll come back to them totally. because I won't want anybody to know my secret. And they think being gay is so bad that I'll never want that to be out there. They also believe that if they can destroy you publicly, that anybody who cares about you will want nothing to do with you because to the church of Scientology, they believe everything is about PR. Everything, everything, everything is about PR. Right. Their biggest fault and what gets them every time is that love is their kryptonite. Hmm. And they don't realize that when you're truly in love with somebody and somebody is truly in love with you, It is not about who you are and who you are in business and how important you are in the world. It is about the love between those two people and true great loves will fight until the death for one another. And that is exactly what Tina and I did. And from that moment on, they were compiling as much information as they could because they thought I was the criminal, that if I was leading Scientology and I was backing away and I was not going there and I was in an out relationship, they believe I must have been hiding something criminally. That's what they believe. What they uncovered was that this producer was the criminal. And every dime 
that I was raising for him, he was stealing. Uh-huh. And so the problem is, here's what they have. They have a guy who's a Scientologist, right? Who is saying that that's not true to them. And in order to stay in Scientology, he will help them get me, that it's all me, all me. Here's what's friggin' crazy with the way the world works. In Los Angeles, out of all the years that I lived there, I moved there in 1986. I did not move to Atlanta until 2016, 2015. I can count two to three people who stuck by me when I was fighting for my life. And the problem that you have is when you live in a world that is so individuated and so about like your personal, your persona and, and what it is that you do and who you are is that they will not stand up for you because they're worried about how it may affect them. And the state of California is so star effing that it is important to them to go after people. It's like they hold this banner up if they can get a lot of news. Right. So what right. happens to me is that a anonymous letter is written to the state of California, to the Department of Corporations, which governs financial license. So I held a life insurance license and it was this like detailed anonymous letter, which of course we have a copy of. It's written just like a Scientologist. Of course, yes. And by the way, mailed from the zip code of the Church of Scientology. Course, and the yes. Church of Scientology pretty much owns like their own zip code. Right, of course. So it's it's mailed. The Department of Corporations then at that time starts an investigation. The producer goes to the Department of Corporations files a complaint against me, leaves the country no, Jesus. for like two months. All of this, I have no idea this is going on. Tina and I are traveling the world and screwing our brains out. Like, I mean, like, I mean, I literally have no clue this is yeah, happening. So um, I come back to a letter from the Department of Insurance, an investigator who wants information about all my business, financials, everything, on top of a letter from his attorney that says the company is bankrupt and he's out of country. Oh my God. And I had raised something like $26 million for this guy. If at that moment, I would have had my head on straight and not went into my bleeding heart mode and and scared to death mode, I would have realized that it's very simple. You follow a financial trail, right? You can name things Ponzi schemes all you want, which is what they ended up naming this. Right. But all you have to do is follow the money trail. If money came in from me, my family, my clients, and that money went to his bank account and I was not on the bank account and I was not an owner of the company and he spent the money. Right. I have no fiduciary responsibility for those funds. And that's simple now, mm-hmm. but it was not simple back then. Of course. And you also have people that are now freaking out because they know that they've lost money. 
The other side of it is my family and I lost more money to that producer, millions of dollars than any one single investor did. Right. And you have but, four kids and yes. Oh, yeah. And But what happens? The Department of Insurance, the investigator is this little Catholic guy who does not believe in homosexuality and decides that he is going to destroy me. And he partners up with from everything we've read through emails. And I mean, eventually gets pulled into the legal side of this. But in the beginning, he's infatuated with as a director. Mm -hmm. All these Scientologists are coming in saying they're going to help this investigator. He thinks I'm evil. He becomes infatuated with me, which I'm only saying that because we have that in court records. It's very weird. I mean, some of the stuff he said to clients and weird, crazy. Yeah. So he literally from 2011 until 2015 does everything he can to take my license, to destroy my companies and to get the to get the state of California to file charges against me. Wow. Simultaneously, they got my ex involved. My ex is trying to take me to court for custody of the kids. And I have to tell you where I sit today Mm -hmm. is gorgeous and beautiful. And it's been, you know, what, almost 13 years since all of this really started, 12 years since it started. Right. But I fought for my life. And even at one point, I debated about taking my life. Right. And, you know, the the moral and the happy ending to the story is that at any point in our life, we can reinvent ourselves. We can find our way back. But it does take perseverance and not giving up on yourself and it also and forgiveness mm-hmm. and forgiveness mm-hmm. forgiveness of yourself predominantly right well and that took the longest time right i mean i i took every asset i had to my name and put it in a trust for my clients i took every proceed from my book and put it in the trust for my clients i even borrowed money from the closest of friends and put it in the trust for the clients. Um, Tina pretty much took a huge amount of money to pay for my legal fees and to defend me all those years and to support the family and took on four children. I mean, look, at the end of the day, Savannah and the twins have only been raised by her and that's how they look at it. Right. It's so beautiful. But, you know, it's it, it was tough. It took like 13 years to untangle your life from Scientology. Yeah, I mean, you know, everything, you know, I prevailed in 2016 um, and it really took me three years to heal. I mean, yeah. every time I would turn around and people would ask me to do something in business or I, I, I didn't believe in myself. I was so down on myself and um, it took three years to heal. And um, in 2016, we moved to, to Atlanta to this community that's kind of like in Ojai, south of Atlanta, um, because Tina's family was from the south. 
we'd had a lot of friends in Atlanta because she had done a musical out here. Mm-hmm. Um, and we knew I had to get out. I mean, I was followed everywhere. I didn't know if it was the investigators hired, if it was right. government or if it was Scientology. And every time I would go out my gate at our house, you know, there would be vans, there would be, I mean, we just LA just became live. smaller and smaller and smaller. Oh, right. There was nowhere that I could go. They were tracking my phone. I actually still have, I just listened to it um, yesterday thinking about this. Yeah. Um, I have a, a recorded Verizon call where I'd gotten a notification on my phone that said, thank you so much for changing your ad- address and your contact information. And I was like, what? I didn't do that. And somebody had called in, acted like me and, and changed all my information on my cell phone so that they could log in and track me and get my texts. And wow. And even when you Google you now, mm-hmm. there's that article about like the Ponzi, whatever the scam. It's a fake. So, but if you scroll down, it says yeah. the Church of Scientology. Yeah. It's a website powered by them. They're so petty. And, and Google will not take it down. Uh, and that's what, you know, like, look, Leah Remini is a good friend. Yeah. She is a wonderful person. She has done so much to bring light to what they're doing and talk about this because, you know, there's so many fake websites about her out yeah. there. Too. Oh, yeah. But think about that for a second. I was on the cover of People magazine that went to 98 million people. Right. That site is higher up than the article in People magazine. What is that? There's something, well, because they have all these bots that are tied to all these different, that bounce around all over to keep that site. And every time the site gets off that page, it then gets bumped back up again. Oh my God. And that is so wrong. Yes. Like it is so wrong after all these years. Yes. And here's the thing. Could I sue them for defamation because there's lies all over that page? Yeah, I could. But what's going to happen with that? I mean, look, I'll outlast them. I you're probably like, I don't want to touch them again. Yeah. You're I don't like- want to go. I don't want to go there. And that's what they're waiting for. They'll just open it all up. Then that's what hits at the top of Google. Mm-hmm. I really, here's how I feel about it. I know who I am. I know what I've done wrong and I know what I have done right. And I know the love that I have in my life. And all that matters to me is that my wife, my children, our family as a core, her daughter, our grandbabies, my mom, my dad, my sister, my brother, that that core of people understand and love me and care about me as I do them. Mm-hmm. Whatever the fuck Google has to say, yeah, it's a, I could Google is an ego trip. Google it is- isn't. My Google is fine now, but when I went through all of this, when the Hollywood Reporter did their first article in September of 2012, all the good work that I had done for 20 years in my life mm. went down the drain. And all I was known as was a Ponzi schemer. I couldn't get a bank account. I couldn't have, if it wasn't for Tina, I would not have been able to put food in my children's mouth. I sold every expensive piece of jewelry, every expensive, everything, every house, every, I, I sold everything to put it to the trust for my clients and to pay for legal fees. And it was like, people don't realize that Google makes or breaks your ability to survive. Totally. There's a person behind that. And that is way too much power for one entity. 
Absolutely. But I love what you said, and that's a perfect place for us to wrap up, is it's never too late to reinvent yourself. I'm so happy that you have found your happy ending in this beautiful home with your beautiful wife and kids. And I just appreciate you spending this hour and a half with me and really going there with me. Like, I think this is going to teach other people so much. And not only that, but make, I think a lot of people are going to feel validated and seen and understood by a lot of the things that you said. So thank Thank you. you. I really appreciate it. We don't have to be defined by every bad mistake that we make in Mm. life. We need to reflect and find out why we made it so we stop making that same mistake again. Mm -hmm. But once you figure it out and once you truly become who you are, you can have the life you want. You need support. You need a support system. Not all of us are lucky to be born into great families or to have money behind us to start new businesses. But be patient. You can reinvent yourself. We don't we don't have to make excuses any longer. Right. And you can be who you want to be. Just right. just get rid of the stuff that's holding you back. But listen to the people who love you. That's an important distinction from the suppressive people that we talked about earlier. Thank you so much. This was so Thank incredible. You, You're so awesome. Thank you. 